0: This is episode number 353 with founder of Designing for Analytics, Brian T. O'Neill. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is Kirill Aramenko, data science coach and lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build your successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today, and now, let's make the complex simple. This episode is brought to you by my very own book, Confident Data Skills. This is not your average data science book. This is a holistic view of data science with lots of practical applications. The whole five steps of the data science process are covered from asking the question to data preparation to analysis to visualization and presentation. Plus, you get career tips ranging from how to approach interviews, get mentors, and master soft skills in the workplace. This book contains over 18 case studies of real-world applications of data science. It covers off algorithms such as random forest, k-nearest neighbors, naive bays, logistic regression, k-means clustering, Thompson sampling, and more. However, the best part is yet to come. The best part is that this book has absolutely zero code. So how can a data science book have zero code? Well, easy. We focus on the intuition behind the data science algorithms so you actually understand them, so you feel them through. And the practical applications, you get plenty of case studies, plenty of examples of them being applied. And the code is something that you can pick up very easily once you understand how these things work. And the benefit of that is that you don't have to sit in front of a computer to read this book. You can read this book on a train, on a plane, on a park bench, in your bed before going to sleep. It's that simple, even though it covers very interesting and sometimes advanced topics at the same time. And check this out, I'm very proud to announce that with dozens of five-star reviews on Amazon and Goodreads, this book is even used at UCSD, University of California, San Diego, to teach one of their data science courses. So if you pick up Confident Data Skills, you'll be in good company. So to sum up, if you're looking for an exciting and thought-provoking book on data science, you can get your copy of Confident Data Skills today on Amazon. It's a purple book. It's hard to miss. And once you get your copy on Amazon, make sure to head on over to www.confidentdataskills.com where you can redeem some additional bonuses and goodies just for buying the book. Make sure not to forget that step. It's absolutely free. It's included with your purchase of the book, but you do need to let us know that you bought it. So once again, the book is called Confident Data Skills and the website is confidentdataskills.com. Thanks for checking it out and I'm sure you'll enjoy. Welcome back to the Super Data Sense podcast, everybody. Super excited to have you back here on the show. Today we've got a very cool and interesting episode. All our episodes, (laughs) all of our episodes are very cool. Today is a very... Uh, Interesting episode because approaching data science from a different perspective. And to provide some context, let's try to answer this question. What are the outcomes that we're going for in this specific data science project? So you might be working on something and how often do you ask yourself, what are the outcomes we're actually going for? Or for instance, this question, how are we going to measure success in this data science piece of work or project or analytics tool, data decision support system that you're building, model, insights, How are you going to measure success? So the thing is that very often we get caught up in lots of different things that comprise data science, from thinking about AI and data science strategy to juggling around different components of IoT systems to working with data preparation or building different models, gathering insights, creating business decision support systems, and so on. Visualizing our data, uh presenting out like we get caught up in all these different things, but what we might get in the end is, in the words of Brian T. O'Neill, a technically right result or insight, but effectively wrong. And what does that mean? Well, and or actually, why does that happen? Well, that can happen because along the way, we hadn't been thinking about the end user, about their experience, about putting them in the middle of everything. And that's where human-centered design thinking actually comes in. And Brian T. O'Neill is uh, an expert in the space of human-centered design specifically for enabling decision-making, to be precise, human decision-making in data science. So he's bringing the field of human-centered design, which exists in other areas of the world as well, He's bringing it into, or he has been bringing it for many years now into the space of data science and enabling decision making. So basically thinking about your customers throughout the way. And that is a very powerful tool. It's a, it's a specific soft skill, but it's not just about presenting the insights. It's about thinking about your user throughout the whole journey. And In this podcast, you'll get a lot of tips on how to do that. So Brian T. O'Neill is a consultant in that space. He's been doing it for many years. In this podcast, we will learn how to uh, ask the right questions, to understand the business needs and what actually is desired from a certain piece of work that you're doing, the seven steps that he performs when he goes into companies to do his consulting work, uh, understanding outputs versus inputs, and the consequences or the outcomes that come out of your outputs. So lots of interesting questions will be raised in this episode and I have a feeling if you apply the things that you learn here in your next data science project, you'll see a different attitude of from the people that you're going to be presenting and delivering it to. They'll have a much better experience and results from your project. So there we go. That's what this episode is all about. As usual, all of the links to Connect with Brian Tierney will be mentioned at the end of this episode, but I want to mention one already now. In case you don't get to the end of the episode, but you want to learn more, uh, Brian has set up a special page for us. Thank you so much, Brian. It's designingforanalytics.com slash superdatascience. You can learn more about his work there if you like. And on that note, let's dive straight into it and let's learn about human-centered design thinking in data science. Here we go. Without further ado, I bring to you Brian T. O'Neill, founder of designingforanalytics.com. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, everybody. Super excited to have you back here on the show. And today's guest is Brian T. O'Neill calling in from Boston. Brian, how are you going today?
1: I'm doing great. How's it going?
0: Very, very good. I'm super excited about today's show because awesome. we're going to be talking about some really cool things. But first of all, you are like a man of many like activities and things that you do. So in addition to data science, you... Play the drums, right? Percussionist. <laughs> I. That's correct. I do do that. <laughs> that's fantastic. Where can our listeners hear some of your work? Because uh,
1: you, we've chatted a bit about it before the podcast. But you play jazz mostly, is that right? Uh, jazz, uh, chamber music, orchestral music, Broadway shows, that type of thing. A little less on the, you know, rock pop music. Uh, occasionally, stuff like that. But yes, a lot, a lot of jazz, classical, world music.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm. And it's not just like a hobby because. You know, I play around, or I I enjoy dabbling on the piano. But I I know two pieces. You actually play professionally. You have two lives, effectively
1: there and That's here. correct. How do you how do you combine <laughs> that? Uh, ah, yeah, well, that was my training. You know, my formal training was in music, so I have a degree in, per, in percussion studies. Uh, so I work as a freelance musician uh, around Boston, uh, doing, as I was saying, you know, a lot of classical work. Uh, I play with a lot of the Broadway uh, theater shows that travel through town. Uh, in the pit orchestras uh, for those, uh, occasionally some star attraction work, you know, video game orchestras will come to town and they pick up musicians. And, and then I run a group called Mr. Ho's Orchestratica, uh, which Mm. sounds like it's spelled, it spells like it sounds just orchestratica.com. If people are interested in that, Uh, that's more of a, what I call my startup. Uh, It's like running your own uh, little business and promoting original music uh, in the kind of chamber jazz and, uh, Global jazz kind of space, so, mm. um, so yeah, so so I do that, and then uh, I've been, you know, designing, uh, for the webs for uh, since 1996. <laughs> Did <laughs> we blur that out? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, about 25 years uh, doing design. Started out as a web designer, uh, you know, gradually moved into uh the kind of the Boston startup dot scene, uh, and then got into more enterprise stuff, uh, Fidelity, uh, Fidelity Investments, and J.P. Morgan, and working in uh, some banking. Uh, in larger, uh, you know, enterprise kind of contexts, and then kind of just got into some very nerdy uh, IT related software products. Uh, There's actually a lot of enterprise B2B uh, companies here in the Boston area. And uh, I just I had clients uh, when I started when I went freelance uh, in like 2006, I I started working for myself so I could kind of balance my two careers and and uh, I just had clients that kept kind of bringing me along to their next projects, and, and they tended to be at uh, very technical companies, so products for other IT people, uh, technical data products, this kind of thing. And and analytics kind of was simmering behind the scenes in all of these. Um, and so uh, that just became a kind of a focal point for me. About four years ago, I decided to kind of specialize my consulting work uh, in data products. And uh, so so my goal is really to help companies uh, design innovative and, and engaging data products powered by data science and analytics, uh, and really to focus on that last mile, which is the, the where humans interact with the stuff that uh, all these great smart people that are doing things with data and math. Uh, at the end of the day, if there's a human in the loop in your system, and you're not developing a fully automated uh, solution, then they are a factor in the success of the work that gets done. Uh, and 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 doing that well is is a different skill set uh, than the modeling piece and the training sets and, you know, getting the data cleaned up and all those other things, they, you can get it technically right and effectively wrong. So I want to make sure that, you know, my clients and the people that I train in in my seminars and this are focused on that human last mile piece, the the really understanding the problem space, understanding uh, how humans are going to perceive the work that's being done, how they're going to understand the data you know, the visualization is is part of this. We we typically jump to that when we talk about design. We, we think of data visualization. I, I tend to think that there's a layer, there's a perspective that's a little bit higher elevation, which is, we in the design world, we call this the user experience uh, kind of layer, which sits above the interface, because you can actually, you can technically get the data visualization piece right, but if you don't have the right data to begin with and you don't understand the context of use, then it doesn't matter if the visualization is, you know, the best way possible to do it, whatever the heck that means. It doesn't matter, right? Because if no one's logging in to use the service and to make decisions, you know, and that's really what a lot of our work is about, right? It's it's really about decision support. So if we don't create decision support with these models and, and analytics services, then we're really not having an impact with it. So we have to look beyond the ink, the data ink that's on the on the page and think about workflows and how do people do their jobs and what are they concerned about with this technology? Do they understand it? Um, what's the change management that may be required there? Um, that, that's how I see it. And one of the concerns I have, and, and jump in if I'm just like babbling here, but it's the, <laughs> it's, the it's operation. Very interesting. Yeah the 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 reason that you know one of the reasons that I know this is failing, and I keep hear, I keep hearing this repeated over and over, uh, is that the what's sometimes called the operationalization of models. Uh, in the non-software companies, they tend to talk about you know AI and predictive analytics in this context of op- of uh, you know improving an internal business as opposed to creating a software product that has data science and analytics behind it. Those are kind of two branches, and they use words like operationalization and change management. And from a design perspective, from a designer's lens on it, I, I don't like that perspective because I feel like what that means is This team goes and does the technical part and they're going to spit out a spreadsheet, a visualization, a Tableau thing, a field in the CRM. There's some output and then it's some other team's job to go in and make the business use that stuff. And this is where I think things can break down, right? Because you've got two teams trying to do the right thing. But I think the perspective that's more important is... Did we design the solution, the model, the thing, the software application, whatever the output medium is, with the engagement model in mind from the start and look at that as part of the success of the overall data science work. It's not a second thing. It's not a something that you pass off to another group. It's integral to the work. Think of it as integral, not this not not a deliverable that you pass to someone else. To go shove down people's throats that's not how you build stuff people want to use instead you get them involved from the start right if it's the sales team or it's the cmo or the marketing department or whatever they should be involved from the beginning of the project so there's no big giant reveal like all of a sudden the ceo is like today we're making a big change <laughs> we're releasing a new model to do x and jaws are hitting the floor and people are like F that, like I'm not using that. I'm going to, I'm still calling the same. I got my sales prospects, right? I'm not calling this list of sales prospects you came up with in the dark with some magic AI stuff. Like, I don't know what that's about, but I know who's going to buy this week and I'm going to call those people. That's my job as a salesperson. Well, right there, there's your six months of data science work down the toilet, right? Because this salesperson does not want to, they don't know how you came up with this list of strange customers that they've never talked to, but you're saying, oh, they're going to close next week. They're gonna like they'll sign they'll sign on the dotted line next week and oh by the way here's what you should charge them here's here's the price quote that you should use and this salesperson is like how did you come up with this number where where's this from? I have no idea what this is about because they weren't involved with the with the uh, solutioning uh, and the problem discovery and they weren't there was no research done that's where things can totally break down so the designer lens is no these people are integral and we have to factor them in from the start and we're all gonna have a better time doing this work together because i'm sure i don't mean I'm, not, I'm sure you've had this experience it's it's more fun to work on stuff people want to use right like not stuff yeah. like it just like For you're sure. hoping this reveal it's like where's the smiles and instead it's like kind of quiet in the room and people are like what does that mean what do i do with that number like <laughs> we don't want to have those kinds of experiences we want to deliver like yes yes when can i get more of that oh could you also show me this does the model factor in this thing? Oh, it does. Oh, that's awesome! I hate doing that work in spreadsheet. Like, <laughs> that's the kind of stuff we want to hear at the at the end. <clears throat> yeah, totally agree. Um,
0: the I, it's interesting because I was interviewing uh, Stratos, one of our students, just yesterday on the podcast as well, and he said that when he was applying for data science job last year, uh, at the interview for the job that he actually ended up taking one of the questions was related to exactly this about soft skills how you know he would present the data data science project how he would talk to executives how he would go about uh, helping people understand what insights he's communicating so it's exciting to see that companies are not only realizing this uh, after the fact now once the data science projects are starting to fail they're doing it preemptively they're in, they're hiring people who who know what they're doing in terms of this, uh, what you call oper- oper- operationalization and soft skills and change management. And what I wanted to ask you, so like, walk us through the process. You've outlined how important it is. Uh, it's, it's totally a critical part. What's the point of doing a project if nobody's going to end up using it? Uh, but like, once you go into a company and they need your help with this operationalization or uh, change management or soft skills and data science, what are your typical steps? How do you identify the problems? Are they at the start, in the middle, at the end of the data science project pipeline or work uh, life cycle? Or
1: and and then once you've identified the problems, what do you do about them? Well, um, the most popular response to this question by a consultant ever is it depends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, there there are uh, so there is a a, a broad. Uh, Design process uh, that that I typically use, but that process is more like it's more like a shelf of ingredients, and I may or may not use this ingredient with this particular pie this week with this client, or I may use a ton of it, or I may start with the flour and then add the water later, and the next time the wa- you know flour doesn't come in until way later in the process. And and one of the things that uh, you know that uh, clients need to understand when they're doing this type of work, when you're doing uh, creative work, when you're doing um, uh, discovery work to, tr- to 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 get into people's heads and understand the problem space and all of this is that it's not um, highly analytical work. Ironically, um, uh-huh. you're going to have to ping pong back and forth to understand what's needed. So sometimes you actually you need to get into the design itself in order to figure out what needs to be designed. Um, research is a big thing that's often missing in this place, and and that could sound like this really expensive, long thing that takes forever to do. Nope. A lot of times what I'm talking about is, you know, having one-on-one conversations with the the actual consumer of whatever it is that's going to, whoever's going to use this, you know, if we're talking about predictive analytics, whoever's going to use this predictive score, we need to figure out what is going to make them want or not want to use this from the beginning. And it you may even need to start with, well, we don't even know who's going to use this. And so right there, we haven't even figured out who is our team. Like, who are the stakeholders in this project? What are their interests uh, in, in this? And what is going to make or break this? Uh, and, and you may need to have a, a conversation with um, your senior level stakeholders because sometimes what can happen is you can't even get the time. You're trying to, you know, say you're helping out the marketing department and they're like, we don't have time to sit in your ideation sessions to go through this. Well, senior management needs to hear that. And what and the response from if, if the data science people are the experts, are the ones that are um, leading the process here, what they need to hear is, look, we can build a model for anything if we have the right data for it. If you want us to build a decision support mechanism for the, for the marketing department, the marketing people need to be involved in the process of helping us understand the pain and the need and how they're going to use this. And if they're not, what you're going to do is pay my department $5 million over the next three months and you're going to have a high risk output at the end of that so do you want us to help you do you want to take the chance that that all the work we're going to do is going to hit the floor and it's never going to be used or do you want to make sure that the marketing people are saying wow we know how to stop advertising the wrong spot we know who to send our mailers to for the next campaign that's coming out this is really helpful information. And if you want the latter, you got to have those people involved uh, at the right time. And so there needs to be a clear understanding of of who our users are, our end users, who our stakeholders are, how we're going to understand what it means for this output. Again, our visualization or our predictive model, whatever it's going to be, how will we measure the success of that at the end of the project before we get into building anything, right? and, And what we may find is that You don't need a machine learning model for this product. You know, maybe the first version of something is like, you know what, right now you're taking a wild ass guess every time you decide, you know, which cohort of people are we going to send this campaign to, right? Well, what if we could just simply tell you how many people opened the mail that we sent last year and we can compare it to these other metrics and all it is is just historical data, but we can at least get that going. Would that be an improvement? Would that help you decide in one month, would that help you start making better decisions about where to spend marketing dollars? And if they said, yeah, that would actually be really great. Well, now we have a way to start small and we're really focused on that, that business output outcome, right? Instead of focusing on building a model, we're focused on help the marketing department know who should we send mailers to and who should we not send mailers to for, you know, the spring 2021, whatever shoe campaign, right? (laughs) So, Yeah. yeah, so that, that, that's part of it. There are several different steps. I, I, in my seminar, uh, I, I have these approximately seven different steps. You have your team building. Uh, we have a stage of research and problem finding or problem definition, which is where we get really crystal clear with our team uh, about what problem we're trying to solve, not what data science problem we're trying to solve, but what, what people problem are we trying to solve and what business uh, outcomes we're going for. Um, we then uh, move into starting a design brief. Uh, And and this is where the question of um, ethics starts to come in. So we may be looking at, you know, what are the second order consequences of the work that we're doing here? Do we need, you know, where might we need to put checks in place with the work that we're doing so that the solutions we're building are ethical and useful and usable and and actually consciously thinking about this and not just waiting for a story to hit the news that we don't want to hear about. So that's a factor in, in the process. Um, from there, I'm, I'm a big fan of um, using a couple tools from design, which are called journey maps or service blueprints. So you've probably heard about, you maybe have heard about these before, uh, but this is a, a visual way of, of talking through uh, the customer's journey, like where they are today and, and and how they do their work today and plotting that out visually over time. So we can understand like, what's it like to be this marketer that needs to send out Things. How did you just? Des- how do you decide how to do that today? What process do you go through? And well, we collect these analytics from this tool, and then we go into Tableau, and then we look at whatever the CRM, and then we. I kind of take a guess based on what I think the market's doing. Anyhow, we we map this thing out, and and by understanding this customer journey and all the departments that may be involved, we can start to have a bigger picture about how does our little or maybe major data science initiative fit into that workflow. And where might it hit the ground, right? Where where is there a gap that may not be a data gap, but it may be an engagement gap, like um, trust. Maybe we find out like the salespeople are on the road all the time. They're not going to open up a PDF. They're not going to open up Tableau in the you know some desktop thing or whatever. They're only going to respond to text messages, whatever's on the screen in their little app that they use. We need to provide them with really good you know recommendations on you know which you know, which door should I go knock on next if I'm selling widgets, you know, door to door or something like that. We need to understand what it's like to be that person and to do that job so that we have that context the entire time that we're doing our work. So the journey maps and service blueprints can help with that. The the difference there is really whether you're talking about an external customer's experience or you're talking about internally how a business process works. So the service blueprint is really for like if you're building a, a model or something to improve operations inside a business, it's they talk about the front stage and the backstage. So that, that's what that service blueprint uh, version is. But they're very similar. They, they look they look very similar.
0: And then from so there, the service blueprint is, is internal.
1: Uh, yes, it, it covers uh, Think Again, think of it as the backstage, like the behind the scenes. You know, when, when you go to the Apple store, it's like think about all the process of like how they how they onboard you when you come in and have a customer service on your iPhone. Right. And then all of a sudden they walk away with your cracked iPhone screen. Well, behind the scenes, there's a whole bunch of stuff happening there. They're probably like, is it under warranty? No, okay, if that's the process, then we do a quick five minute you know check of the screen and see if we can do a hot swap. Nope, ok. There's a whole process that they go through there. and but the customer doesn't see that, right? So that's hmm. that's more that service blueprint uh, version. So that may be applicable for your your audience that's you know working as an employee inside a business trying to improve the internals of that business. Um, from there, yeah, and, and oh, another part of this is honeymoon, what I call the honeymooning and the onboarding. And this is, what, again, we sometimes use this term operationalization, uh, but I also like to think about what, what I call the honeymoon period, which is the, the period between when we make the announcement or we, quote, launch, launch or put into production whatever the output of our analytics work is, there's a period of time here where it's new and it's different, and I call this the honeymoon, and your design and the way this works, it you may need to consciously put intentional effort into how we help with that transition. And in, instead of relying heavily on training, which, you know, it's hard to get people to show up for this stuff, it may be something where we actually need to design into the software, for example, how do we kind of transition someone from the old way? Like, you know, we know that you used to use a spreadsheet here. Well, you can actually up, upload your spreadsheet here and then we'll map this into our predictions and we'll help you, you know, save some steps, right? Of like, maybe they need to key in a bunch of data in order to get back some recommendations on something. And by understanding what what these blockers are, the friction points, we can actually kind of smooth this transition out uh, by really... And I'm sure all of your, your you and your listeners have experienced clunky onboarding when you download a new app for your phone and you you know a lot of times they force you through a tour and you're like skip 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 just get me into the product right you you kind of want the product to just be intuitive you don't want to read a bunch of screens about all this stuff it's going to do because you probably downloaded it because you have one thing you want to do and now they want to tell you about 20 things that you need to do through through a, a video or whatever all that stuff is just in the way But if you really understand how someone wants to use the service and what their job is or what they need to do, you can design that experience to gradually bring them into the new way uh, of doing whatever that may be. So from there, you get into actually doing the uh, sketching, algorithm design, planning, getting visual with workflows. Um, If there are visualizations that need to be uh, uh, presented here, then I like to work low fidelity, so I kind of teach this idea of of working lo-fi with a small team, with your your, your kind of power team that we talked about in the first module there, uh, but working at a whiteboard together and trying to get visual and, and to prototype or simulate what might our outputs look like in low fidelity before we ever do any data work whatsoever. And again, partly what we're doing here is we're taking away the giant reveal uh, you know, this, it shouldn't be the, like, there's a black cloak, you know, you walk into this dark room and then bang, the lights go on and <laughs> here's the data science model. <laughs> that is not how you want to release it's, stuff. It's kind
0: of like the difference between waterfall and agile, I guess.
1: Yeah, exactly. And it, it, so we want to, we want people nodding their heads as we move through this process, because they're, they know what we're doing. They know why we've done it the way we're doing it. And they've been evolved. They've been involved throughout the process. And they, and a, they
0: feel like owners as well. Like it's, yeah. And, the yep. the product is you know you're presenting it to their bosses they'll be on
1: your side helping you present it rather than on the opposite side exactly exactly so yeah so there's this visual process there and we, we're we're doing this work in iteration with our our team uh and then kind of the last two uh the really the last uh formal phase here and again remember you may have you may by this point you may realize wow we don't even know what we're trying to do here like this we haven't clarified the problem yet. we're We're sketching stuff, but we're realizing by getting visual here, this are our, our you know we have our you know our chief marketing officer has been on our team here participating, and they still don't really understand how they're going to use this number that our model is going to come up with to do their work. We might need to go back to the the drawing board, do some other research or talk about the problem space more before we go any further before we start doing a ton of work. You know, collecting data and building pipelines and all this stuff, you may ping pong back and forth between these different stages before you move forward. But the last kind of formal, if we were to do this in the perfect theoretical way, where it was like step one through six, you know, perfectly, the last step here would be uh, doing validation uh, of of the design of the results here. And so, what does that mean in the context of like uh, a predictive model or something like this? Well, the, the easiest way to boil this down would be Let's say you're going to present a score from zero to 100. You know, you have a probability. That's what your model spits out. And uh, the CMO is going to, you know, every day they log into this dashboard and your model is going to uh, produce a, a 67 uh, on Tuesday. Let's say the score is, is 67. Well, what are you going to do with that 67? And 67 as compared to what? Like <laughs> and, and asking this person well, what would you do with the 67? And, uh, and letting them talk about how are you going to react to this score? And so by presenting them a visual and having a conversation with them, we sometimes call this usability testing or design validation, we can start to tease out what might need to go into the engineering and the modeling. So what you might hear is, well, 67 doesn't feel very certain to me, but if I understood why it was 67, then I might know who to like, send my mailers to, right? But right now you just say it's 67 and I don't really know how you guys came up with that. So ding ding, light goes on, right? We might need in model interpretability here, right? We may need a way to show which features contributed most to that. And if they didn't say that and it was someone said, you know what, anything, anything above a an 80, I'm cool with that. I don't really give a crap how you guys came up with it because it doesn't matter. Like anything above 80 is awesome. Anything below 50, I'm just going to totally ignore. I don't care. Well, at that point, you may say, well, you know what? We can come up with a much better algorithm here that's you know, 92% accurate. If you don't really need to know how we came up with this and there's no you know, compliance issues or whatever, that, may, that, that can start to uh, um, guide the technical decisions that are made in terms of how the actual data science part uh, works. Uh, but guess what? You don't need data to test this out you may find out that like, oh, with a 67, we need this kind of model interpretability. And in fact, maybe we need a scoring system, you know, a qualitative ranges like anything between 67 and 75 is a is a buy, you know, anything that's below 67 and 52 is a hold, you know, red, green, yellow. We sometimes talk about the traffic lights. The point here is you're talking about putting a qualitative measure onto this quantitative score that came out. And the only way you're going to know what that stuff, those those qualitative ranges should be is by having a conversation with your customers, with your users to understand how they're going to perceive this information and how they're going to act on it. And you don't actually have to build the entire model to know that. You can also start to tease out how accurate does it need to be. And this is something I hear about, you know, a fair amount is, you know, data scientists, especially young ones, they want to do cool data science work. Uh, Some of the more academic ones want to publish papers about how accurate their models are, et cetera. And they're focused heavily on the accuracy of the model and not so much on the did someone use my model to make decisions. And in a business context, that's what they care about. And what you may find out, and I have a podcast episode about this, and the, the title was something along the lines of, you know, when does a 60% accurate model beat an 85% accurate model? And the joke is, well, it's the one that, the one that actually gets used to make decisions. That's what <laughs> matters. And, and the reality was, is this person was, uh, it was uh, David Stevenson. Um, he was talking about, this was a big kind of light bulb moment for him. Uh, it was when he learned from his uh, client, or I forget, it was an employee or if he was consulting there. Uh, but the client, he he was spending all this time trying to get the accuracy up from, you know, 80 to 82 percent or 85 percent. And his business partner was like, what the hell are you doing? Like, this is so great. If you can tell me that this is 65 percent accurate, let's go on to the next thing. I don't care. Like, I've made my decision. It's a yes, no decision. I, I forget. I'm kind of paraphrasing here. This could be wrong. But the point here was that was more than enough accurate for for some really great business value to be created and spending twice as long to get a 5% increase in the quality of the prediction was not a good business decision whatsoever. Because now you're, you know, you're task, you're doing, you're spending all your time doing this work that the, the sponsor or the user doesn't care about. It it won't make any difference on how that person does their job, whether it's 80 or 85% accurate. It's completely meaningless. And so, but if you never have those conversations with your stakeholders and your users, you're never going to know that. You're not going to know what the the pain and gain looks like from their perspective. And this empathy is what helps, is what's required for us to understand how to design really effective solutions. We have to put ourselves in their perspective and kind of take off our technical hats and and look at things from the perspective of the person that's consuming them. Uh, and, and that's what design is really about. It's really about empathy and being able to put ourselves in their seat and their role and and relate to what that person's job is like and how they make decisions about things and how do we slide our technology in there to to help with that so i know that's a long-winded ex- explanation of kind of the process but it's it's mushy it's gray it's mushy it's not perfect it's not clean um but that's it, it can be we can put structure on it uh, and, and, and that's partly what we talk about in my seminar is like, yes, it's supposed to be a little bit messy. We may need to ping pong back and forth. That's kind of the innovation space. But we're also trying to fail fast here. We're trying to learn quickly what's working and what's not without spending a ton of time building the wrong stuff. So when you get that question like, we, what is our machine learning strategy? Right there, your alarm should be going off. This is a bad question. This question needs to be unpacked. And the reality is, is your business sponsor, if you're, if you're not at a software company, your business sponsor probably doesn't understand what's possible. So you may need to have a separate discussion about well, what what is AI, what is possible with these technologies, and realize together we need to have a better conversation about what business outcome we want. Yes, we will try to use machine learning if that's the best thing possible for us. And if you really just want machine learning no matter what, then let's talk about this in laboratory, what I call lab mode. Let's have a project where really what we're doing here is we're going to rehearsal and we're practicing. We're having a scrimmage. And if that's the point, let's take a really tiny project. There's no expectation of business value. We're just here to exercise our abilities to see if can we collect data? Can we put the training data together? Can we test it? Can we deploy it? If that's really just to exercise our skill sets and perhaps to see, you know, where do we need more talent? Is it visualization? Is it data engineering? fine but the point is you have a clear uh plan and a clear conversation to set expectations that the goal of this project is a lab mode to to work on these skills to see if in the future we can a- we actually have the skills to 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 put ai to good use uh in a business context and produce some value i don't think that's what's happening i think usually it's like go give us some cool sh-. excuse my french like go build some amazing thing with you know, hire some PhDs and they're going to come up with this magic sauce and they're going to give it to us at the end. And then there's this big kind of disappointment or, or the the data scientists are saying like, well, what is the problem you want me to work on? And the business person is saying, well, what's possible? And they're like, well, I don't know. It's your business. Like you're the product manager. (laughs) What, what would you like us to help you with? And you can see this like a tennis game going back and forth. And my feeling is, and the people that I talk to in my show it's time for the data people to step up here and start to have uh, a better understanding of the people that are going to use these solutions. And it's not to say that business people don't also have a responsibility to become more data literate, uh, but I, I tend to think that the last, the, the last straw in this game are the people that are writing the code and pushing this stuff out. It's the data people. And so they are the linchpin in this, and I think that skill set needs to de- needs to be developed Uh, at least in part, by the data people. They need to learn how to ask good probing questions. They need to learn how to extract these needs from a stakeholder who may not understand what's possible yet with with these techniques and to try to really guide that person to express their need more clearly so that your team, if you're the data people, you can be assured that my work is not going to fall on the floor in six months. People are are not going to be wondering what is the value of paying You know, and and this is expensive, right? People are paying top dollar right now for this talent. But guess what? It's going to change. You know, like all all, the salaries are going to come down. Everyone's jumping into this space. And at some point, uh, there's going to be a lot of people with, you know, quote, data science in their title are claiming this. And who's going to be left standings are the ones that can actually turn data science into value and outcomes. And that requires a different skill set. It's not Python. It's not R. It's not Kubernetes. It's not all that technical stuff that's part of it uh but there's another part of it here if you really want to connect it to the people so yeah you know, i'm blabbering you asked ask me some questions but I'm, I'm hoping this is helpful to to your very listeners helpful. And, i'm you know i'm uh, i'm listening like very
0: soaking it all in very interesting <laughs> insights what i think would be very helpful for our audience is the seven steps you identified, fantastic. You know, from team building to design brief, journey map, service blueprint, honeymooning, sketching, uh, algorithm design, uh, validation, uh, usability testing. Very uh, useful tips. However, it sounds like that is something more of a, uh, is good to be aware of for anybody, but also that's a that's a framework for a consultant who goes in to analyze a business or maybe for even a business leader or manager to work with their stakeholders Mm-hmm. Um, around data products mm-hmm. the question that i'd love to get your opinion on is what can an individual contributor an ic data scientist somebody who's there doing building the code who's not the only data scientist in the whole company there where he would obviously be you know have the mandate to apply this framework of seven steps but he's a part of a bigger team maybe there's 100 people in this team maybe there's five or Twenty people on his team. He's not the manager. He's not the leader, uh, or he or she. Like he or right. she, they are um, part of this bigger team. So they don't have this control or say of what's going to happen, what's not going to happen. They're just doing their job. How can they be better at design thinking?
1: Sure, it's a fair question, and 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 ultimately these these are strategic questions. They're these they they, they do come down to that. Um, I, I think the way to, to think about this is, is by being objective and and asking good questions, for example, how, how are we going to know that we did a good job with this project? Like if you're having questions about the work you're doing and you feel like, God, this project is going off the rails, well, maybe it's time to get, get your team together and just have an informal conversation and say, you know, it would really help me if, you know, could we come up with just five bullets that are going to dictate the success of this project like how would we know not technically not anything to do with the data but at some point we're going to present something to somebody right if, <laughs> they're going to consume this and they're going to make a decision about whether it's good bad okay excellent whatever what how is that going to happen and if if there's silence in the room or it's really mushy then you can express that you know should we spend some time clarifying this so that we can make sure that we really hit a home run here to to, to use a baseball analogy. You know, are we hitting a home run or a base hit here? Well, if no one can tell us the difference between what a base hit and a home run is, then what do you think the chance of us hitting a home run is? It's probably pretty low. And it sounds really simple here. But if you have uh, if you have responses like. um, We will impact the business. (laughs) <laughs> we will use AI in the CRM. Well, that's really—it's like, well, we could probably find an off-the-shelf sh- off thing, uh, create a field in the CRM, and shove a data point into it, and say we created AI-, AI in the CRM. Whatever, right? That's not clear enough for us to to actually be actionable here and produce value. And I think if you really uh, ha- ask these questions with your team, and it's not meant to challenge anybody, it's—it's it's in. It's in pursuit of clarity for the team, so that we don't create a data output that falls on the floor. And and part of this is how you ask the questions. And you know, I have articles on my site about how you do this kind of research. But a lot of this really comes down to asking really good, open-ended questions, listening, and trying to kind of facilitate the conversation here, so that everyone sees why we're asking these questions. But I think that's one way to do it: is simply to have a question about what are the outcomes we're going for here, and how will we measure. That these were effective and it's very rare I I, I hate to say it it's 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 rare that I see that because most of the time um, you know employees are are usually compensated for inputs and effort like you you trade your time we pay you a salary you know every month to come in and and use your data science skills and you're really paying for time this model focuses more even though you're still going to get paid for your time this model comes from a different one which is what if what if our compensation was based on the results that we created, the, the outcomes and the value that we produce? And I think part of the reason we don't have this question as much is partially because of the way most companies compensate their employees. And, and I'm not suggesting we change that or anything, but that's, I think, part of the reason these questions don't always come up. And instead, we just kind of wait for a boss to tell us, this is the next thing we're doing. <laughs> Here's the mm-hmm. project. Here's where the data are. You know, build some connectors. We're going to need to clean up this X, Y, and Z, da, 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 And you kind of just go in and do the work. Uh, at some point in your career, if you're, you're a junior, and you're probably going to either go kind of down the expert contributor path or you're going to go into management. But either one of those two things, the more you can start to realize that I'm not really being paid here for our programming. That's not really what they want. What, the reason why someone is funding my team is they want the value That my R programming theoretically can produce for the business. And if you don't know what that value is, it's gonna be a lot harder for for you to be seen as an extreme, you know, a great contributor. And so trying to align your work with that bigger picture, that's one way to really start to connect the dots here is to say, you know what? Yes, I know how to do the model. Yes, we have the data here. But my concern is when we talked to so and so, the CMO, they said, We're not going to use this. If we can't understand how you came with this prediction, we're not going to be able to use it. We can't take the risk and we'd rather just, we're going to keep the status quo here. So when your boss is saying, look, we can get 95% accuracy by using this deep learning model, blah, 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 then you can say, well, that's, that's fine. I'm I'm with you if that's what you want to do. But didn't we hear, you know, so-and-so said they're not going to use this. So do we want to maybe try a first version here with maybe a little less accurate, but we know this person's going to use it because we can prove to them how the model came up with these recommendations. Maybe that's where we should go first and then we can see if we should make it more accurate. You can try to have these conversations and I know I know that's tough. You know, sometimes it's hard to have these conversations when you're early in your career, but I would challenge your listeners, you're not really there to to write code. What really what a business a line of business wants is they want the value that your code produces. But it's not really the code and the modeling and all the stuff that you learn in school. That's not really what they want. It's the output. It's the outcome from your outputs. So if you always have that kind of lens in your mind and you can connect it to the people who are going to consume those outputs, you're probably going to be more successful just in your career in general.
0: Wow, that's, that's golden. I think if people <laughs> follow that advice, they'll be twice as successful already. Yeah, Indeed. It's sure. The output, the out, as you said, the outcome of the output yep. that matters. Not Can I give you an example
1: it, of this, like real sure. quick, like from sure. th- I, th- I had this is my learning moment for your your listeners. When I was working, I worked at Lycos. If you remember, Yahoo was bit you know twenty years ago. Yahoo was the big search engine before Google, and Lycos hmm. and Alta Vista were competitors. And I worked at Lycos, and. I was a designer and we each, you know, belonged to different verticals and I focused a lot on the uh, financial services products and some online trading platforms and things like this. And I I remember one day when I was designing one of the stock research pages for the, you know, Lycos Finance or whatever it was and I was talking to the product manager about the ad placements here and for for years and just Stop. Most designers, they hate the ads. If you're If you're working in like a media company where advertising is the model, it's like, you know you have to find these slots to put banner ads on the page and you hate it and all this kind of stuff. And it didn't click until this moment, this conversation with him that, wait a second, these ads are what fund my salary here to be a designer and to do the work that I love to do. So what if I change my perspective to, look, no one really likes looking at ads. We know the customers don't hate, they hate that. But at some point this funds the business. And, and so what if I can use my creative energy to figure out how to fit ads into the experience in a way that's not so annoying? Maybe it's a little bit smoother, or maybe there's an ad at a surprising place where it actually has some interesting context for the customer something like that. I looked at it more like, I I actually want to help my team produce more advertising revenue because that funds my salary, but that's really what they're asking for. And it was just this light that kind of went on for me. And so I stopped fighting it and I realized it's never going to go away. This is a media company. At the time, you know, they were looking at subscription businesses and other models, but at the time it was a media company, which meant advertising. And so I actually started coming up with some other advertising products that 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 we could actually go out and sell that kind of stayed out of the way of the UX, which was my job, is to make really great user experiences uh, with these interfaces. And but also I've started to think about what would be some other ways we could sell creative advertising. Cause that's really what it was about. But I was fighting it constantly. And part of that, you want that yin and yang, right? You you kind of want some of that in the business, which is you have kind of our purest designers and designers can relate to this, you know, it's like they're always going to go for simplicity and usability. And sometimes, you know, you may want uh to encourage people to opt into a form, right? To uh, provide some more data. Well, maybe there's a creative way to collect that data that that uh, is both transparent and ethical. But it's perhaps it's fun. Maybe you turn it into a game instead of asking someone to fill out a survey. You, we 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 put that into a game context. But we realize that we actually do need to to collect this information. And how can we do that in the interest of the business and the customer? It's not just about the the user experience piece. It's about the business value that we're creating, too, and oh, that, that was kind of the, when the light went on for me in the advertising context, but I'm sure your, your listeners can, can probably find a way that they can start to see, like, wow, we're going to help salespeople know who to call uh, instead of just opening the CRM and st- smile and dial, right? What if we could tell them, like, here are the next 20 people based on all the data we have. We think these 20 people are most likely to sign on the dotted line within the next two months. Like... Put yourself in their shoes. What is it like to be a salesperson? And when you start to realize that's really what the business hired you and your team for, is to help these salespeople know who to call. So they spend less time calling the wrong people. That's what you're there for. Not Python. Not R. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, wow. Okay, so, uh, so in a nutshell,
0: um, re- keep in mind what you're there for in terms of you're there for the outputs uh and the outcomes that come from your outputs not for your inputs and also empathy i love that you mentioned that i really understanding and sitting down this really helps mm-hmm. help me many times sitting down with the people that i'm creating a model for or creating some analytics for doing analytics for sitting down with them and even just living with them throughout through their whole working day understanding what they experience yes. what they feel throughout the day Really helps yep. and like inform what mm-hmm. I need to be doing. And
1: I, you know, one other comment on this is the, you know, I, I know, uh, I'm going to totally cast a generalization. There's lots of different people out there, but I'm going to say, generalist. Generally speaking, people with STEM backgrounds tend to be a little bit more introverted. Um, they might, they may find some, some of these kinds of research discussions a little bit uh, uncomfortable. And here's the great thing about doing good research: your primary job is to listen. It's not to talk. So if you're not comfortable like mm-hmm. doing this, really your job is to come up with some good questions, open ended. We call them open ended questions, which means questions that generally don't start with the word do because we don't want questions to end with yes or no. We want to ask, like, tell me about mm-hmm. X. Tell me about how you decide who to call when you're on the hook to for your sales numbers. How do you decide who should get what offer? Ask open ended questions here mm-hmm. and just listen. And 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 this is a way to kind of get into get comfort with this process where you don't feel the need to talk like I am right now. I'm babbling, but it's really about listening. Is is really what it's about.
0: Gotcha. Totally agree. Um, Brian, so you have quite a few things that you're doing at the same time. You're uh, of course in addition to your music, but at the same time you do consulting for companies. Uh, you run seminars. You run. You are about to launch a course, which is very exciting. Uh, you've got uh, a podcast mm-hmm. of your own. So, um, first of all, I want everybody to know that Brian uh, Brian's podcast sounds amazing. It's called Experiencing Data with Brian T. O'Neill. Check it out on iTunes. Congrats, Brian. You, you've done, what, like a year now of uh, podcasting, yeah. right? Yep.
1: Uh, episode 34, I think, comes out tomorrow, actually, based on when we're recording this now. So, it's it's been good. Yeah, every two weeks I, we drop. So Fantastic
0: really cool so um the episode you were talking about earlier is episode 24 how empathy can really reveal a 60 percent accurate data science solution so everybody you're like you're on this podcast you're listening to this means you love podcasts already check out uh experiencing data with brian t O'Neill. i think you're gonna love it and brian i wanted to ask you so what do you teach so you have already shared quite a Mm -hmm. lot of things on the podcast today what is it that you teach? Any additional insights you can provide from the seminars that you run? Um like what what are the discussions around there? Like I am just curious what other themes exist in this space of using human-centered
1: design and data science. Um so are are you asking like what what's like in a, a seminar or a course? Is that what you're asking?
0: Yeah, typically what's the what's the what's in these
1: online sure. seminars that you're sure. doing? Sure. So days? Uh, well, I'll I'll give you an idea of the the self guided video course which I, I just put up um, the the curriculum like that process we talked about those six or seven steps that were there um, that's a video course okay. so what it is is um, uh, for each module of those six or seven there's uh, I think seven uh, there's a a short video where I kind of talk about the key concepts in there uh, and then there's a, a written uh, a written module that goes with that and it's really focused on on doing the work. It's not a read a book and it kind of, you kind of digest 10% of it, 90% goes out the door. Most adults learn by doing. And so what I really tried to do with this course is provide actionable steps for each module. What do I literally go out and do? Like if I'm doing this work in my own organization, what do I go and do to Mm. put this into action? When you talk about coming up with your team, well, what does that mean? Literally, so that's what I have, is the video is kind of an overview for the module, and then uh, there's kind of step-by-step activities there. Uh, and then I link to examples uh, when it's relevant. Uh, I pr- try to provide some uh, e- examples there. Uh, and, and one of the ways it's different is that um, the course is called Designing Human-Centered Data Products, and uh, it's loosely based on, you've probably heard of the term design thinking before, uh, but what I I felt uh-huh. was missing was this lens on data products, and And so each module specifically talks about what is different in the context of data products. When I'm working with AI or probabilistic types of software applications, what are some of the considerations that are different? So, and that's currently the way, this is still a very new space, but generally speaking, I would say right now, a good 70% of of the process is the same, and and 70% of the meat and potatoes of doing good design work is the same whether or not it's a machine learning model or a just descriptive analytics or some other technique most of it's the same but there are other considerations we need to add on when we're talking about you know probabilistic models and so each model each uh, module has a, sp- a specific call out about what what are the considerations here if i'm building you know a predictive model or something like that So that's the course. And then there's an instructor led uh, online seminar version, which is the same modules. The only difference is I release one module, I I release two modules per week. And then we have a call together with a course of people that are a cohort of people that are in Slack. So this is the doing it with other people, which partially helps keep you on track and make sure that you actually uh, go and do the work. And and some people like to work uh, alone. Other people wanna kind of have a cohort of people to go through it with, and, and hopefully they can learn from each other. Uh, and so we have live Q and A's, uh, on, on Mondays, we release the new modules and have a discussion about those. And then Fridays we do a check-in, uh, and and, and and it's actually spread out over four weeks. Uh, it's not four weeks of like 40 hours a week. Um, it's very much designed Uh on it's you get in what you put, what you put into it is what you get out of it. And the goal here is to give you time to actually go and do some of this work. And some of it takes time, right? It takes time to set up a like, I want to go do a ride-along interview with my salesperson. I, I don't know how they do their work, but I I understand that I need to go understand a day in the life of the salesperson before I do this. Well, it could take a few days to set that up. And so I intentionally spread that seminar out over, over four weeks so that there's time for people to put this into play uh, and then get feedback from me on it. So uh, so that's the seminar, and and uh, yeah, that's how the training works. That's really cool. Can you give us an example of... a?
0: Like you said, uh, you provide hands-on exercises for people to do uh, on their jobs already. Like maybe, can you give us an example of a simple hands-on uh, exercise somebody can go and do at their work already tomorrow to
1: actually experience that, that feeling? Um, well, I, I, in terms of actually literally spelling out how to do it, uh, I don't know if I could shortly do that on the podcast, but if you're talking about what are some of the types of activities like this, jer- this journey mapping and service blueprinting we talked about, that's one of the things we talked about. So who's involved? Like who do I need to bring to a session to do that? How do I set it up? And in this case, I actually provide a, a, gra- a visual template that you can use uh, here to get going with this. But we talk about literally like setting up the room and who needs to be involved here. W- what is the goal of doing a journey map? And what do you do with the thing? Like, okay, I have the map. Now what? I that's what we go through in the course is literally what is this for what is the value of it what do I do with it in order to to move forward and when do I do this right when is it important for me to to use this particular tool because again you may not need this tool or it may be too late for this like at the stage of the product that you're in so that that's another aspect of this is um, you don't have to do everything and every single module all the time on every project. What I want to do is give you seven kind of core areas. And this is not all of design, right? This is it's just like algorithms, right? Or different m- modeling methods. You don't necessarily use all of them all the time on every project. But I wanted to give people uh, seven kind of core areas uh, that they can you know, go de- deep on. And you know, six months later, you may say, oh, wow, I, I remember we did something with uh, usability studies and we have a lot of screens to show people. I'm going to go dig out that module on testing. That brian had and then i can use that on this project you know because we're doing lots of visuals or something like that so yeah okay gotcha gotcha um what i
0: love about online teaching is success stories where people uh, have um, applied what i wanted to convey and they've gotten a job or a promotion or some kind of success any cool success story you can share about somebody who wasn't using design thinking uh and then uh, through listening to you on the podcast, or taking a course, or somehow in- interacting with your work, they decided, "Oh, I'm going to try out design thinking," and that completely changed
1: their career. Anything inspiring like that that you can um, I can't for for the the seminar and the course. I can't because the course is just about to come out, and this the <laughs> seminar just uh, is is yeah. actually really new. And we just uh, I'm actually hoping to put some testimonials up soon. So I'm I'm in the I'm in the process of actually uh, gathering uh, some um feedback from my uh, uh first cohort of students that went through this so hopefully you'll be able to see uh, some of those uh, the, the results from um the seminar and the course uh, on my website in the in the, the near future so I can't specifically say there's that but one of the things I got like from one of the uh, the people uh in the course and and so this person was actually she's at an AI consulting firm and and she's technically uh-huh. like an account and project manager. But what she realized was a lot of the challenges they were having uh, there. They were working with a, a, a pharma company um, was in this kind of user experience space. Right. Because the the client kept saying, well, just build some stuff and we'll figure out whether it's good later. And she could kind of smell that like, well, this could be really risky for us because they're kind of happy with the work as long as we're doing stuff, like as long as we're building pipelines and showing data. But they they couldn't give a clear expression of how is this information going to be used to make decisions?" And she wasn't sure she could see the team was kind of struggling with this, and they, they had had some difficult conversations with their client. And so by taking the course, she said, "I feel a lot more armed now about what tool what tool do I use in this toolbox based on what the what the current client situation is that we're having, And now I feel a lot more armed like." Hey, you know, when I when it's time to do to test this, I actually know how to test the results of our visualization or the application that we built. I know how to go do that now with them so that they can say they can see whether or not the work we did was useful or not. And and then we can learn from from that. And before it was very much kind of like is the client say they're happy or not? Well, the client may look at something and say, "Oh, I'm happy that looks really nice." But if you didn't actually talk to them about like, well, does it work well? (laughs) If no one can measure how it's supposed to work, then you might be just happy with the way it looks on the surface. But underneath the covers, it's not actually producing that value. And so now she knows how to go and have that conversation uh, with the client and use that toolkit. So that was one of the big uh, things for me uh, was that she had gotten that out of it. Another student uh, was actually managing director at a big supply chain uh, finance kind of related company. and, And he's trying to figure out how do I bring some of our IP and uh, our analysts work that we do on every single project? Like we have some IP here. We want to productize this into an application so that we're not spending as much time doing the same types of manual tooling work here. And he just didn't have a framework for how do you get from kind of ad hoc presentations of work to a software application that will express uh, this, this information on a routine way uh, and, he, and he was really struggling with that. And so he's like, he feels that now he has a much better idea of what that process looks like to get to that UI um, that, that will help him spend more time doing higher value work for his clients.
0: Amazing. That's really, really cool examples of this stuff in action and uh, from quite some senior people as well. So uh, you should, <laughs> Brian, you should give out certificates for your trainings because this would be so valuable. Or oh, it is already so valuable, but imagine like, Somebody, I can just see somebody coming to an interview and saying, okay, this is a data science interview. Like, what else do you know? Python R, and normally people are like, oh, I know SQL, I know this, I know Tableau, I know Kubernetes, I know TensorFlow 2.0, whatever else. And that's all great. But imagine like saying two, three, four, five, whatever tools, technical tools, and then in addition, saying, plus, I did a whole training on design-centered thinking in the space of analytics, data science, and AI. And this is what I know. This is the framework I apply. This is my awareness of the situation. This is how confident I am about dealing with internal and external stakeholders. And boom, like you just blow them away. Nobody ever says that at interviews, like if you're looking for a job or if you're looking for, you know, getting better at your company, getting promotion or growing your existing business at your annual review, whatever it is, or talking to your manager at your next one-on-one. You you start mentioning these things, discussing these things. You'll be like the first person in the whole AI team talking about design-centered thinking. I think, I think this is a great addition to anybody's career. Like, uh, very exciting. I'm I'm glad. uh, Very very cool that you decided to go from music into this, (laughs) and also in addition, you're you're finding time to teach this and spread this knowledge. I think that's very, the very very cool. And also plus this podcast, some interesting guests that you're interviewing. Hats off to you for all the amazing you know, contributions you're making to this data. Oh, software. great.
1: Yeah, no, I, I appreciate the work. And, you know, as for the certificate thing, you know, someone asked me about this and, and I told her, look, this is, this is the real world. It's not school. And school is about getting a grade. And, and if you look at why is school the way it is, school was designed, as from what I understand, I was just listening to a, po- listening to a podcast on this, school was designed to optimize factory workers, basically, right? You process them, you train them. If they don't pass, you send them back. Until they're uh, they've learned that the skill and you move them up the ladder and you use you know quantitative testing to figure out whether or not they pass or not. That is not the world of business. That is not the that's not what we're there for. It's not to say I know more Python functions by memory than you do. That's that's easy stuff to measure, right? The biggest reward mm-hmm. I think you could get out of taking my course or seminar, and the thing that would be the biggest thanks for me is is when your profile when your resume starts to talk about the results of the work that you have created with your team, right? When it says, I helped the business save $2 million a month by building a model that did X, that is gonna make you stand out at your next job. When you say, I know R, Python, Kubernetes, I've certified Microsoft Cloud, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Well, guess what? You look like all the other people that are now coming to this field, except your number, I have seven years of this instead of six. Well, if you if you want to yeah. command a higher salary, when you can say, look, yeah, I don't know Python as well as, you know, this other guy that you do, but did they help create a two million dollar savings and and with their data science work? <laughs> like, do they know how to go talk yeah. to a stakeholder who says, give me AI and they have no idea what they want? I actually can go in there and help you figure out what do they mean when they say they want AI? What should we really spend our precious data science dollars on? When you could have that conversation, and I think my course will help people learn how to do that, that's a good thank you to me. And that's going to speak way louder than any certificate with my logo on it. I mean, I, I appreciate the gesture there, and I, I know where you're going with it. But that's really what's going to make a bigger difference for you as a data science practitioner is to, is to be able to really show the results uh, and the out, the outcomes that you have helped produce. And it's hard, it's, it's hard to do this. Sometimes it's hard to measure it and, and really track it back to exactly your work. I get it but at least have that in mind with the work you're doing. And, and you'll probably see you're going to have a a great career ahead of you, I think.
0: Fantastic, Brian. Well, that's a great note to end this episode on. Uh, I think everybody's gotten what they needed out of this and much, much more. Um, what's uh, Before I let you go, what's uh, the best place to find you? Where can our listeners contact you or get in touch or just follow your career and follow the things that you
1: share? Uh, sure. Yeah, I'd say uh, if you go to my website, designingforanalytics.com, that's probably the best place. Um, I have a mailing list. So if you kind of want to just keep track of what uh, what I'm doing, I, I do send out uh, little insight articles every week uh, and uh, updates on the podcast. So each time we release an episode, uh, that gets sent out to the list. Um, I'm also uh, pretty active on LinkedIn, uh, Twitter. My handle is Rhythm Spice, R-H-Y-T-H-M Spice. Uh, I'm not super active there. So I'd say, uh, you know, Hop on, the, hop on the list uh, if you're interested in, in kind of following my work. And uh, usually we have little uh, I, I offer little uh, deals sometimes when I'm especially when I'm putting out a new offering, a, a new training thing or something like that. I usually uh, in the in the spirit of doing MVPs, right, I, I may be contacting you to do a little research and like, is this a useful service? And and then offering coupons and discounts and things like that to, to my subscribers. So um, so, yeah, that's that's probably the best
0: place fantastic thank you so once again the website is designing for analytics or one word, mm-hmm. com. definitely check it out and the podcast is called experiencing data with brian mm-hmm. t O'Neill. brian is uh, linkedin a good place to for people to connect yes uh, that's
1: a great place to connect as
0: well mm-hmm. awesome great and connect uh, make sure to connect with brian on linkedin okay great and one more question i have for you today is uh what's a book you can recommend to our listeners i'm sure you have something special prepared um
1: yes uh, there's well there's two books um i would say um they're both a little bit more on the business side um but are you familiar with uh, kareem lakani <clears throat> at uh, no. he's so he's at uh, harvard business school uh and he just wrote a text called competing in the age of ai uh so i actually went to the mm-hmm. little the book release I, I live close to harvard here and and uh i'm really i'm just about 20 percent of the way through that, but if you want to look at, if you want to start to understand, like, how is AI really changing the business landscape? And maybe you can start to feel like, oh, I can see how I fit into this. I think that's a a good text to start to kind of look at a high level, how your business stakeholders are looking at it. It's not a technical book uh, whatsoever. Uh, the other text that I'm uh, in, in the middle of reading that I'm enjoying is called Infonomics. I don't know if you know, Doug Laney, um, but this is a, this is a Gartner book and it really talks about Um, how to monetize, uh, manage, and measure information. Um, So it's looking at data as an asset instead of this kind of like sawdust, right? It's not sawdust. That dust has a lot of value. Uh, And and so what do we do with it though, right? How do we create products with it? How do we improve products and services using data? Uh, And so uh, Doug's got a a book there and I'm I'm really interested in in finishing that. So those are the two uh, things that I'm reading right now. Fantastic,
0: thanks. Thanks for the recommendation. So competing in the age of AI and in Phenomics. Yes. Um, On that note, Brian, thanks so much for coming on the show. Really enjoyed our chat and uh, I learned a ton from here and I'm sure our listeners will pick up great things from here as well. Thank you so much. Awesome. Yeah,
1: it's been a pleasure to chat with you.
0: So there you have it, everybody. That was Brian T. O'Neill and human-centered design thinking for enabling decision-making in data science. How exciting was that? Lots of valuable insights which you can already apply in your career already now. What was my favorite part? My favorite part was the concept of thinking about your end user throughout the whole process. So something that I've talked about before quite a lot is that the most in-demand data scientists are the ones that can connect insights to end users. So that's the last stage of the data science project lifecycle, the presentation, the visualization, the presentation, communication of insight. But Brian takes it a step further. He says that you need to be thinking about your end user not in the very end of your uh, project, which is important, which in- indeed will r- already set you apart. But he's saying think about your user throughout your whole project. From the moment you ask their questions, to to then preparing your data, to then building your model, to then visualizing and presenting it. In the whole five steps, um, you need to be thinking about your user. And that's what human-centered design thinking is all about in data science. It doesn't matter if you're creating a data science product or you're building a model or just delivering an insight or a decision support application, whatever it is. Think about the end user. I think it's a skill, it's a skill, it's an art, something that needs to be learned and practiced. And hopefully now after this podcast, everybody will be a little bit more inspired to practice it. And as mentioned throughout the podcast, you can find Brian at designingforanalytics.com. So if you're a business and you want to engage Brian uh, to look at your analytics products, then head on over to designingforanalytics.com slash superdatascience. That's a way to get in touch with him and uh, we don't have any affiliate arrangement with him. That's just a nice link that he set up for our listeners. On the other hand, if you are a individual contributor in the space of data science, if you're a user um, or <laughs> like if you're a data scientist basically, the best way the best things that will benefit you from um, his suite of products or things that you can find on his website are his podcast which is called Experiencing Data with Brian T. O'Neill. And since you're listening to this podcast, you already like podcasts, check that out. Uh, It's Experiencing Data of Brian T. O'Neill. Then his seminar, which is an online seminar, and his course, which he just published recently or is publishing in the coming days. Check that out as well. So maybe you want to learn more about design thinking in data science. So there we go. That's where you can find Brian T. O'Neill. Of course, you can connect with him on LinkedIn as well. And all of these links, plus all the materials that we Mentioned throughout this podcast Will be available as usual At superdatasense.com Slash 353 That's superdatasense.com Slash 353 And another exciting uh, Piece of news Is Brian T. O'Neill's Coming to Datasense Go So if you Haven't booked your tickets yet This is the Datasense Go US version United States In October 2020 Brian T. O'Neill Will be presenting there We're getting him to come All the way from Boston So if you haven't got your tickets yet head on over to datasciencego.com, get your tickets today, lock them in, and we will see you there. You'll see Brian T. O'Neill and lots of other exciting speakers. So there we go. That's the end of today's podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. And I look forward to seeing you back here next time. And until then, happy analyzing.